Well, last night uh, we were uh, talking uh, about the, the why of uh, Yom Kippur. Why, well, not the why meaning Yom, but the why meaning uh, uh, why do we repent? What's, uh, you know, we know uh, all of the, uh, the, 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 like the Bible doctrines of it, you know, say that I will be uh, forgiven of my sins so that I'm in a right relationship with God. And, uh, and I was saying last night that I think that still way down deep inside, we might ask the question, so what? You know, uh, life goes on. It doesn't seem to make a, a whole lot of difference. It's, it's easy to uh, recite a doctrinal statement or, quote-unquote, like the, the party line, you know. But what does it mean? What does it mean to us? Well, last night we talked a lot about that from Hosea chapter 14. Uh, and uh, uh, that was meaningful where God says, I will heal their apostasy. And I made the uh, comment there that it could have said, I forgive their apostasy. But it doesn't say. It says, uh, rather, heal their apostasy. So we talked about what that means and, and what uh, God loving us freely means and how that is something that we really yearn and desire. Well, I, it's really a part one, and today is part two, because there it's what God says, this is what I'm going to do. If you repent, if you come to me with your words, this is what I'll do. Now, this morning, we're going to look at uh, a prayer of confession uh, and, uh, and see how that plays out and what it is that the person who's confessing is really desirous of. And, and then we'll relate that, of course, to uh, Yom Kippur and Yeshua uh, in our lives. You know, the great thing about Yom Kippur is, is uh, that we're here all day. So, settle back? No. Uh, there certainly is a, a lot uh, to say, but, uh, but no. Uh, we're going to look today at uh, David's psalm, great psalms of confession, which are Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. We read last night Psalm 32, responsively, and today uh, Psalm 51, uh, responsively. Uh, after all, this is a day of confession, and so let's look at uh, King David, who really is at the top of the line of public figures sinning in the Bible, uh, and uh, his uh, confession. And, uh, you know, this just popped into my head, and that's kind of scary. But it, it's very interesting uh, just to think about that, that here is the king who sinned greatly and his response. And I think that uh, speaks a lot about the integrity of David, even though he sinned. You know, uh, let me just say this. Sin, uh, what we're going to see here, sin does not define King David. Isn't that a, that's a powerful statement when you think about it. When you think about King David, you know, in Hosea's day, remember what we read last night from the third chapter of Hosea? When it's hundreds of years after David, hundreds of years after Psalm 51 was penned in Psalm 32, and First and Second Samuel were written, which outlines the uh, sins of David. Okay? Hosea says that the day is going to come when you are going to seek the Lord your God and David your king. Now, we said last night that 
because this is hundreds of years after the life of King David, that King David is used as, uh, as representative of, of his descendant, the Messiah, uh, the, the, the ultimate king of Israel. But yet, notice how highly exalted the name of David is hundreds of years after his sins. He was not defined by those sins. He was defined by the fact that he was a man after the heart of God and, and his confession. And so let that be a lesson to us always about ourselves and about others that sin does not define who we are unless it becomes who we are, I suppose, unless it's something that uh, we revel in and love and want to be known for, I guess then it can define us in a way. But as I look around the room, uh, when we sin, I, I believe most of us are sinning because of the, the weakness of the flesh, uh, and not because we have such uh, you know, horror in our hearts. And so it's very important that we uh, see David in that way, and we relate to David uh, in that way. So the first thing I want to do is turn to Second uh, Samuel in your Bibles to get a little background here. Second Samuel chapter 12. I like to look at uh, you know, chapter 11 as David's, David declared chapter 11. In other words, David's moral bankruptcy is in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. And you know what he did. You know, the men went out to war, and he was uh, hanging out. And as it says uh, there in um, verse 2 of chapter 11, it says, Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Then David sent Joab, sent to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So, Di- so Joab sent, uh, Uriah uh, uh, to David. Uh, and so uh, Uriah comes to David. David says to Uriah, go down to your house, this is in verse 8, and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go into his house. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And he says that uh, you know, he doesn't want to uh, do anything that would... Uh, he wanted to relate to the men uh, uh, on the front. Uh, he talks you know, about the uh, men who are staying in temporary shelters and camping in the open field and and uh, he did not feel justified in going uh, and enjoying his uh, home and his wife, right? Okay, and so uh, we read in uh, the, uh, uh, later on in the chapter that uh, David sets up Uriah uh, and has him 
uh, and has him killed. Okay? It says in verse 15, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw for him so that he may be struck down and, uh, and die. Okay. Now, uh, at the end of the chapter, it says, Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned uh, for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. So this is, uh, 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 what, a, what a horrific uh, thing David did. Uh, it's horrific. He, uh, uh, he has a, an affair with this soldier's wife. She becomes pregnant, and he has the husband killed, and he marries her. That happened here now. David would be in prison for the rest of his life. You know, it's a horrific thing. Uh, and uh, when we read about it in the Bible and we tell it over and over again, it kind of takes the edge off. David sinned. David did wrong before God. David did a horrible, horrendous thing, far worse than I believe anybody uh, that I know has done. You know, such a, 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 a terrible thing. So now David sends, uh, now the Lord sends Nathan. Nathan was a prophet uh, to David. And you know, as I like to say in our MSI classes, you, know, you notice in the Torah that you read a lot about the priests, the priests being religious leaders. The priests who we read in Leviticus chapter 10 are supposed to be the teachers. They're supposed to be teaching what's right and what's wrong and so on. And it's very interesting, they're prevalent all the way until the time that kings are raised up. Once kings are raised up in Israel, you hardly ever read about priests anymore. You read some, but what do you begin to read about more? Prophets. Prophets. What were prophets supposed to do for kings? They were supposed to be a pain in the neck to, to the kings. And they were supposed to tell the kings, you got to, you've got to shape up or you'll be shipping out you got to get it right. You need to make sure that the people are walking with God. You need to make sure that you're not making deals with other countries with, without first consulting God. You can't be like all the other kings that are all over the place. You're different. So that's what the prophets did. There were many prophets, not only the ones who wrote letters and books and oracles that we have, the major prophets, the minor prophets. There were many of them. And one of them here is Nathan. Nathan. Uh, uh, and so Nathan comes to David and he says to him, he tells him a story. There were two men in one city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except little ewe, a little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together uh, with him and his children. It would, be, it would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. And he was, and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb. I mean, that's outrageous. He's telling him an outrageous story. And prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. 
And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Then Nathan says to David, You are the man. That must have taken an awful lot of courage to say to David, who had such bloody hands that he could not uh, build the house of God. But Nathan can say to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord of God. And so then he goes on to say, it is I who anointed you king over Israel. And it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And it had been too little. I, if it had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his, in his sight? And he, he goes on uh, here. But the point is, is that David realizes his sin and is convicted of his sin. Uh, when he hears, you are the man and you have done evil in the sight of of the Lord. Okay? Now, in verse 13, it says, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. See, he, he doesn't justify himself. He doesn't give an excuse. He doesn't say, he doesn't say to Nathan, you know, if you were me and you saw Bathsheba, you know, it's how it goes. No. I have sinned against no nothing, no rationalizing anything. Just I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. That is an odd statement uh, to read in the Tanakh. That the Lord, it doesn't say he covered your sin. The Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Now he tells him that there's consequences for this. There's going to be consequences. One is, you did it in secret. The whole world is going to know about it. The other one is, is this child is going to die. There's consequences for his actions. It's, it's not like uh, there's no residual damage done. It's not like, uh, you, you know, okay, uh, I'm forgiven, and now let's like pretend that it never happened. That's, that's not what's happening here. Uh, but uh, David is indeed forgiven of God, and his sin is is removed. Now, we might ask ourselves in reading uh, 2 Samuel 12, what was David feeling on the inside? What was he going through in all this? We see what he says here, and we surmise his feelings, but what was he really feeling? Well, we know what he was feeling because we have Psalm 32. It's like the before and after, okay? So let's turn quickly to Psalm 32. There's a question that I have often asked myself about this passage that in 2 Samuel. And that's, why is it that it took for Nathan to tell him the story and then Nathan to have to say, you are the man, for David to um, confess his sins? Was he completely oblivious to it? Was, uh, did he actually not know that this was wrong? And he does nothing about it. I think the answer is in Psalm 32. When he says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man who does, 
is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now here, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, thy hand, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. So we see that when he kept silent about his sin, inside David was suffering greatly. He was hurting. He was sick. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. Therefore, based on my experience, therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not reach him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou dost preserve me from trouble. Thou dost surround me with songs of deliverance. And so what we see here is that he suffered greatly when he hid his sin. And remember what we said last night? What does God promise to do when we repent? I will heal apostasy. I will heal transgression. I will heal sin. And so all of that, that, that for many of us, constantly is a knot in our stomach uh, and you know, just is a millstone, not around our neck, but inside of us. God brings healing, real healing, real, sometimes people call inner healing when we confess those sins and outer healing as well, okay? Uh, and so this is what David was experiencing. But then he acknowledged his sin and his iniquity he did not hide. And he says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Now, let's turn to Psalm 51. And here we read... What we don't read, you might say, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. So when Nathan confronts David, and David acknowledges his sin, confesses his sin, this was David's prayer. David did pray. He didn't just say, I'm guilty, and then Nathan, your sins are forgiven, taken away. We see this uh, communication between uh, David and God, how David acknowledges his sin. In fact, it says, right? Right in the superscription, which is verse 1 in Hebrew, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he has gone into Bathsheba. This is what David prayed. So he says here, first, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So we see, again, he comes with nothing. David does not rationalize the sin. He does not blame Bathsheba. He does not blame his advisors. Uh, he does not blame anybody else. He doesn't blame his father. He doesn't blame his mother. He just says, be gracious to me. There's no, I'm, It's like... It's like, I, I think of it, they get the visual as like this destitute person coming with their pockets inside out, just saying, I, I have nothing. No thing, there's nothing, God. 
nothing I can say. He also, notice, uh, does not uh, pray uh, that, um, you know, that nobody finds out about it. He doesn't pray uh, that uh, there would be no uh, repercussions. He just says, be gracious to me, Lord. I come with nothing. Be gracious to me, O God, acknowledge, according to your loving kindness. Now, when he says according, this is important. All the words are always important. Observational Bible study. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness and according to the greatness of your compassion. What David is praying is what we will be saying uh, in, in a few minutes. And that comes from uh, Exodus chapter uh, 34. When David is in the uh, cleft of the rock, right? And uh, God passes by, right? In uh, Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on children and, the gr and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Meaning not some supernatural curse, but the ramifications of sin last a long time. And the focus of these verses is on the loving kindness of God and the, the compassion of God and the grace of God and the fact that he is slow to anger and keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquity. And what David is doing is saying, according to your loving kindness, according to your compassion, and the wonderful thing is, is that God's compassion and his loving kindness have, have no bottom. So David is saying, I, I need a lot of compassion. I need a lot of your loyal love. And that's why he says, according to your loving kindness. Because he believes, he trusts that God's compassions never cease. He believes and trusts in the loving kindness of God. While David sinned greatly, he did not lose faith in God. Sinning and faithlessness are not exactly equivalent. Now, the Bible calls sin forgetting God, not remembering God. Okay? And perhaps faithlessness in the moment, but it doesn't mean that we literally become atheists and sin. Many people, and myself at the front of the line, have never stopped trusting in Yeshua, and at the same time, I have to say, have never stopped completely sinning either. It's one of those paradoxes uh, that we are all aware of, the human condition. And so David has great faith and trust in God. That is why he is able to just lay prostrate before God, without any excuse, be gracious to me, because he knows the loving kindness and the compassion of God. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He wants to be clean. He wants to be washed. He wants to be restored to God. Then he says, for I know my transgressions. 
and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, only thee have I sinned, and done what is evil in in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak, and blameless when thou dost judge. So at the very same time, he is hanging on, one might say, to the loving kindness and grace of God. He doesn't take this for granted because he knows that God judges, but he knows the grace of God abounds for those that seek the Lord and those who love him. Yet he also knows the ramifications of sin. And so uh, uh, David is wallowing. That's what I wrote in my notes. He's wallowing in sinfulness. He, it's right before him. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. It's not on the back burner. David, David's sin is burning within him. It's not like he's sinned and he's thinking, okay, now let me think, let me think how I have sinned. And maybe I can come up with a few things to confess. No. His sin is ever before him. That means he can't stop thinking about it. Wherever he goes, whatever he's doing, he's thinking about this sin. And so, uh, and when he says, against thee, only thee, only against you have I sinned, people make um, much uh, theology out of that statement. What I would say is, this is his great passion to be right with God. Some could say that, well, you only sin against God, you do bad things to other people, but you sin against God. I, I don't know if, you know, we can split those hairs, I don't know. I think that when I have to ask forgiveness, I've sinned against somebody and I have to ask forgiveness. That's why I have to ask forgiveness of them. Because I have to ask forgiveness of God. I have to ask forgiveness of others. I think what David is saying is that that I'm so uh, wretched with sin that uh, I know that you are the one who is my authority. You are the one with whom I have to do. You are the one who can only take away sins. And so, Lord, my sin is ever before you. Against you, only you have I sinned. Meaning, in the, you might say, in, in the same way that um, you read uh, that Israel is my firstborn, my only son. You know, uh, in Exodus, that no, there are other firstborns and people before Israel and so on. But in terms of priority, in terms of priority, against you, only you have I sinned. And then he continues. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, in, in my, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being. He is, he is just uh, wretched with sin, with guilt, and self-condemning. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. I am inward, outwardly, I am a sinner. Behold, thou dost desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part thou will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. It's like a fight, right? It's like a fight. There are other places in the text that also uh, go from verse to verse where first uh, he's, he's wallowing in, in sin, but he says, but you clean me. You can claim, yes, oh, I was brought forth in iniquity, but please, you clean me. You know, and he uses the word hyssop. Purify me with hyssop. It's interesting that hyssop uh, was what was used to smear the blood on the door, you know, at Passover. 
uh, purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, so we see in those first seven verses, he, he is guilt-ridden, and he cries out to God. And he trusts that, that uh, God is the, is the only one who can, because of his grace and his loving kindness and his compassion upon me, uh, you know, his unmerited favor, his loyal love, and we might say his looking at me and recognizing my human frailty, he, he pities me. That those are the uh, trademarks or the characters of God that drive him to not run away from God because of his sin, but drive him to God. And then what he wants is to be clean, to be cleansed, to be restored. Then in verse 8, the tenor changes a little bit. And this in Psalm 51 is David's why. David's why. I want to be clean. I want to be restored to you, Lord. And this is what he, what he wants. This is what he wants to experience. This is like the end game of the repentance. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. And then he once again pleads, hide your face, uh, hide thy face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. But create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take away thy Holy Spirit from me. And then again in verse 12, the why. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. I, then I will teach transgressors thy ways and sinners will be turned to you. So what does he want? He wants to experience once again the joy of God. He wants to experience again that unique, settled feeling of uh, being in the hands of God, of that settled feeling of trust and walking in, uh, uh, in blessing, we might say. That's what he wants. He wants a restoration of the relationship. Now, you know, you can't really define joy. Uh, it's, not a, it's not exhilaration. And it's not euphoria. If you want euphoria, like I said, I think I might have said this last night, I don't remember. There are many, phar there are many pharmaceutical products that can give us a euphoric feeling. Drugs work wonders for a euphoric feeling. Okay? It's something else. It's that sense you have when you, are, when you have had a broken relationship with someone and then it is restored. There's a, there's a, there's a, a, a feeling that goes along with that. There is a sense that goes along with that. That is a marvelous experience, restoration, and being in restored relationship. That's what David wants from God, even though he has royally messed up his life in a variety of ways. I mean, this sin was going to affect his children. David lived a, pretty much a very unhappy personal life. You're aware of that. David basically lived an, an unhappy personal life. For the rest of his life. He had military victory. He had, a, he had a great career, but his personal life was in shambles for the rest of his life. Okay? Uh, but he was restored to God. David did not find his 
reason for being in the failures of his children or in the difficulties and the relationships that he had with his children. David had a terrible relationship with his children. We do not define ourselves by our relationships with our children. They may be ramifications of sinful activities, but you see what David needs in order to live wholly is to be restored to God. And then he could deal with the other things, but he needed to be restored uh, uh, to God. And that is what he seeks. He does not seek here restoration with anybody but the God. And so we see here the, uh, the priority of this relationship with God. Okay? Uh, then he says, uh, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, from blood, really, the guilt of blood. Uh, o God, thou God of my salvation, then thy tongue will rejoice, will, will sing, well, I'm sorry, will joyfully sing of thy righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare thy praise. Does that ring a bell? Right? We say that whenever we say the Amidah. That's the opening line of the Amidah. For thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. You know, um, you know broken and contrite in Hebrew? They're synonyms. They're really synonyms. But you know what they both mean? To absolutely shatter, crush, break into a million pieces. Strong words. Uh, uh, a broken and contrite heart. Not just a broken and a heart of contrition. No. A heart that has been stomped on. A heart that is so, uh, that senses guilt in such a way that uh, has nowhere else to go but to God. David is not afraid that others might find out. David is not afraid of finger-pointing or what others might think. David is so racked with guilt that he is totally defeated. And so what he's saying here is, is that sometimes, as we all know, you have to get to the bottom of the barrel before you can go up. And this is what David was experiencing. David was experiencing total humiliation. Total humiliation. He was experiencing uh, uh, you know, regret big time and the damage that he had done to himself, to his family, and to others. And he was totally guilty here, feeling guilty before God. And then he says at the end, but thy favor do good to but by thy favor do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then thou wilt delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then young bulls will be offered on thine altar. Lord, you know, in that day, so to speak. But for him himself, David knew that it wasn't going through any kind of religious practices of bringing offerings, but that God wanted his heart his broken heart, and that, God, that he could come to God and that God would heal his broken heart. And so last night we saw God says, I will heal, I will heal your apostasy. I will heal your sin. And here David comes to him with a broken heart, a destroyed heart that needs healing. We saw in Psalm 32, 
what his sin had done uh, 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 to him. And it was only God to whom he would go. And what does he say? He says, what I want to do is, is have once again that joy. And then, notice what he says back in verse 13. I will teach transgressors thy ways and sinners will be turned to you. That when I am restored, I will be a testimony of your compassion, of your loving kindness, and I will make a difference in people's lives by my restoration. It's not in my bravado, not in my military prowess, and not even in, you know, macho righteousness, you know, but it's in being broken and being restored. Sinners will be turned to you. I will teach transgressors thy ways. Why? Because I have been there. I have been broken. And I have been indeed restored. Now, what the marvelous thing is for us, just to finish up here, is that Yeshua, David came before Yeshua. And so now we are living in a day when we know that the one true atonement has indeed uh, happened, you know, in, uh, you know, in the person of, uh, of, Messiah, uh, of Messiah Yeshua. Uh, and we read uh, that, um, you know, in the book of Hebrews in the ninth chapter, the writer talks about, uh, about how what the high priest once a year on Yom Kippur, he's talking about Yom Kippur, would go into the Holy of Holies. But then he says, but when Messiah appeared as high priest of good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Having obtained eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so Messiah has come. And now in chapter 10, he says, we enter through a new and living way. We have a whole new way of approaching God. Yes, when we sin, even as Messiah, even as believers, we sin. We feel guilty about it, but we say what we understand, what we read in the Brit Chadashah, but that when we confess our sins, God is righteous and just to forgive us and cleanse us. Just what David was praying. He does that, and we need to believe that by faith. And we need to constantly be repenting and repenting and repenting and confessing and confessing and confessing. Because as we do, we are aware of our sin and we are aware of being restored Uh, are being restored to God. And you know, it does a world of good, even in our relationships with other people. As someone once said, uh, you know, don't look at others to find your own faults. Look at your own faults and then look at others. And when we do that, it's hard to get offended. It's hard to get offended when I know myself. It's hard to get offended when, uh, when I am regularly prostrate before God seeking his grace and his mercy, how can I not extend it to somebody who has sinned against me? What kind of person am I? If I cannot not just mouth words of forgiveness, but not have a root of bitterness. 
and be restored. Because look what God does for us. This is what God has done in Messiah Yeshua. And this is what he does every day, every moment of every day when we confess our sins. Yes, confess regularly, but don't be defined by your sins. Be defined by the loving kindness, compassion, and grace of God. That is who you are in Messiah. You are a new creation in him. You are not defined by your regrets of the past. You are defined by the hope of the future. That is our takeaway on Yom Kippur. Yes, God has indeed received us. God has indeed restored us. And as we spend this day thinking about sins and confessing them, let us remember the depth of the loving kindness and the compassion and the grace and the mercy of God. And he has indeed washed us and we do indeed belong to him. And now we have a powerful testimony, like David said, that we can share and people will indeed be turned to God by the power of the Ruach HaKodesh who lives in us as we share our own story of sin, transgression, forgiveness, and restoration. Let's make Psalm 51 our own. If you can't think of words to pray uh, when you desire to confess sins, just pray Psalm 51. And remember, though, that Yeshua has taken away your sins. Remember uh, what Paul says, you know, uh, in the book of Ephesians, uh, in uh, the first and the second chapter, uh, just a couple of verses there, when he says, uh, he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, again, according, ay, according to the riches of his grace, right? His grace, you can't outsin the grace of God, right? So according, like David said, according to his loving kindness, according to his compassion, Paul says, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. And then in chapter 2, he says, and you were once dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. Uh, and then he says in verse 3, among them we too, me too, formerly lived, right? And then in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even we, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with the Messiah. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not, and that not of yourselves. It is indeed a gift of God. He made us alive. And Yeshua says in John chapter 10, he says, I have given you life to the fullest. That's where we get the phrase abundant life from in the, in the scriptures. Life that is uh, gushing out. And that is the life that God has always desired that we live. That is the blessing that he promised to Adam and Eve that got all messed up with sin. But when Yeshua comes, he blots out that sin. He takes it away. And now we can live, like I like to say, a full human life. Full of rich uh, relationship with God and manifested in our relationship with others. As we find our refuge in him and indeed in one another. And so with those thoughts in mind, let us go to God and let's pray. Lord uh, God, I pray, God, that if we are here heavy, heavy in heart today, I pray, God, that we might be able to speak as Peter did, Lord, 
of unspeakable joy. Of unspeakable joy. Lord, I pray, God, that we might be restored to that. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Lord, I pray, God, that that would be our takeaway. Lord, I pray that we would confess and we would repent, not just because it's the right thing to do, or that's what we're supposed to do, but because it has a real uh, result in our lives of wholeness, a healing in our minds, a healing in our conscience, a healing in our heart, a healing in our, in our inner person that then allows us not to just be a pinball and react to situations, but to act well and to be a forgiver of others, to be able to experience the real joy and warmth of forgiveness and living and walking with you. Lord, as we read in Psalm 1, blessed is the one who meditates on your word day and night. He or she is like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. Lord, I pray that that would be us. The end result of our confession is rich nourishment in you, Lord, that yields itself to marvelous, rich, wonderful uh, relationships, God, uh, with one another, and in which we can demonstrate to this world what it means to be forgiven of sin, what it means to show contrition, what it means to ask forgiveness, what it means to receive it, and what it means to be reconciled. Lord, our world is walking around banging into walls in darkness. Our world cannot figure it out. Our world decides what is sinful and what is not. Our world is ready to destroy lives and people in varieties of ways. Lord, our world needs to have a window into the future. What your kingdom looks like, that is what our world desires. Peace, joy, loving kindness, forgiveness, uh, unconditional love, things like that, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. That's what we're talking about. So Lord, may you, may you, Lord, uh, uh, restore us. Restore us as individuals. Uh, restore us as a community, Lord, so that we would stand firm in you and be able to demonstrate Messiah life as we've described it here and as you have given to us in your word. And we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen.